As you're seated, we invite our children's kindergarten, first and second grade to be dismissed for children's worship at this time. As our children leave, let's bow together and pray. May we hear you, O God, in such a way as scripture is read, as sermon is offered, that we might uh, more fully be the people that you dream us to be. Speak, Lord, your servants are listening today. In Jesus' name, amen. We continue our reading through the second book of the Bible, the Exodus. It is an ancient, ancient story, and I want you to hear it and listen for the word of the Lord, the truth of God that comes through this story. You know the story of the Exodus, how Moses went to Pharaoh after God spoke to him in the burning bush and commanded that Pharaoh let God's people, the children of Israel, go free. They've been enslaved for generations. Pharaoh refuses and plagues ensue, and we come to the tenth and final plague. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. Pharaoh arose in the night, he and all his officials and all the Egyptians, and there was a loud cry in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. And Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron in the night. Rise up! Go away from my people, both of you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you said. Take your flocks, take your herd as you said, and be gone. And bring a blessing on me too. We move to chapter 14, where the Pharaoh has had a change of mind. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled... The mind of Pharaoh and his officials were changed toward the people. And they said, what have we done? Letting Israel leave our service. So Pharaoh had his chariots made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 picked chariots and all the chariots of Egypt with the officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he pursued the Israelites, who were going out boldly. The Egyptians pursued them. All Pharaoh's horses and chariots, his chariot drivers and his army, they overtook them, camped by the sea. As Pharaoh drew near, the Israelites looked back, and there were the Egyptians advancing on them. In great fear, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us, that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the very thing we told you in Egypt, saying, let us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and see the deliverance that the Lord will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you look at today, 
you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to keep still. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. The Israelites went into the sea on dry ground, the waters forming a wall on the right and on the left. The Egyptians pursued and went into the sea after them, all of Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and chariot drivers, At the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down upon the Egyptian army and threw the Egyptian army into panic. The Lord clogged their chariot wheels so that they turned with difficulty. The Egyptians said, let us flee the Israelites, for the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand again. Over the sea, so that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their chariot drivers. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at dawn the sea returned to its normal depth. As the Egyptians fled before it, the Lord tossed the Egyptians back into the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the chariot drivers, the entire army of the Pharaoh that followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained, but the Israelites walked on dry ground through the sea, the water forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. Then the Lord saved Israel that day. From the Egyptians, the Lord saved Israel. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the sea and saw the great works that the Lord did against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and believed in the Lord. The word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Wow, what a great story. It is really the story. This and the resurrection story are the stories around which our faith gravitates. And what a shame it would be to either believe this story or disbelieve this story based on the literal reading of this story. Because a literal reading creates all kinds of confusion, turns God into kind of a monster. But if you look for the meaning and the power and the truth and the hope in this story, you will find the power of God. This is what we might call an insider story. This is not the same story that would be told from another point of view, say from the point of view of the Egyptians. This is an inside story. And it's about this energy of love that we call God, which is able to hear the cry of slaves, of voiceless people, and to make a way where there appears to be no way. And so as people of faith through the years, we repeat this story. We reenact this story. We relive this story, and we embody this story. We do it personally. One of the things we Baptists are very strong on is a personal relationship with God. To have that power of love meet you where you are, where the places where you find yourself enslaved. To let that love come to you and name 
your particular brokenness, my particular brokenness, and bring healing to restore us and awaken us and connect us. So that personal relationship, it's something we always talk about when people are baptized. We want to hear their experience of faith because it's so fascinating and so so uh, transformative in people's lives. And it's different for every person, but it's very personal. But when we read the story of the book of Exodus, we not only talk about a God who comes personally to us, we also have to talk about a God who comes politically. And let me be very quick to say, I'm not talking about partisanship, typical political, Democrat, Republican, Independent. But I'm using the word political as it has to do with the people and how the people live and how the power is used and what positions people are given, the place that they're given, the value that they're given in the world. This is political. So the gospel on the one hand is Jesus loves me, And the other hand of the gospel is Jesus loves the world, the whole world, and especially the oppressed. It is God's desire to bring balance, life, wholeness. And anywhere there's oppression, God says, let the people go. This isn't something we can do just casually. This is part of what it means to be faithful. Church isn't just about personal relationship. It's also about how Our faith affects the world we live in. This book of Exodus also says a couple of other things that are profoundly important. It suggests that human crying, human pain, is a signal that something is out of balance. Something is amiss. That the harmony and the flow that God wants the world to have has gotten interrupted, stuck. And there's a cry. Exodus 1 is, or Exodus is filled with stories of racism, exploitation, dehumanization, and even enslaving a people. That's the narrative. But now it's met by a new God. There's a new God in Egypt. His name is Yahweh. God's name is Yahweh. Who comes not just to keep the status quo, but rather to break up the status quo so that all can have freedom. In a world where there's scarcity and greed and fear and violence throughout the book of Exodus, it's met by Yahweh, who comes with abundance and community and a sense of harmonizing the world. Whereas the Egyptians are living out of a life of privilege, we're in, you're out, we're good, you're bad, we deserve, you don't. God comes along, this Yahweh God, and says to Abram, I'm going to bless you so that you can bless all of the world. This is about everyone. This is the God who answers the question, am I my brother's keeper, with the answer, yes, yes. This is the one who answers Peter's question, how many times should I forgive, seven times? No, 70 times seven, a God of extravagance and goodness in life. This is a new God on the scene. This isn't the God of the rich. This isn't the God of the status quo. This is God who hears the cries of the voiceless and is moved, is affected by it, and acts 
to believe in a God who in ways that we can't always know and can't always prove is acting in the world. So God sends Moses. Tell him. Tell Pharaoh. Let my people go. And Pharaoh resists. He says, no, I like it the way it is. And so the plagues, these sacred hints from nature that come, to say that something is badly wrong, that there's disconnection, that there's discord and disease and disaster and desecration of creation. Plague after plague after plague until finally we come to this tenth plague, what I call the boomerang plague, where what Pharaoh tried to instill on the, on, on the Israelites boomerangs back on him and the firstborn of the Egyptians die. Finally, Pharaoh says, okay, y'all go, just go. And the Israelites say, you don't have to tell me twice, we are out of here. But as that great philosopher, Neil Sadaka, once said, (laughs) breaking up is hard to do. Because it's not a clean break. Pharaoh and Israel don't really let go of each other. It's almost as if they prefer the status quo of brokenness to the pain that change might require in order to get where they need to go, to harmony. Well, that's understandable for Pharaoh. I mean, the system's working for him. He's got free labor. He's exploiting these people. They're under his command. He's got a food monopoly going. But he realizes... A change to free the slaves, that's got a cost to it. That's going to require something of me. And so you've heard of buyer's remorse. Pharaoh has liberator's remorse. Ooh, I shouldn't have done that. He regrets it. He wants what he has, and he wants it so badly that somehow he's able to compartmentalize and either forget or ignore or repress the plagues and the cries and the death in his own household. All these hints that are saying life is out of balance, but Pharaoh doesn't care. Pharaoh will never care. Pharaoh cares about one thing, getting what Pharaoh wants. Pharaoh is the politics of scarcity, of fear and exclusion, and politics of a uniformity and conformity. And Pharaoh doesn't give up. Pharaoh is whatever traps you and me and us together in the status quo of imbalance. For some, it's an addiction. For others, it's a deal that you've created at work that has you and keeps you but doesn't fulfill you. For others, it's some distraction that is pulling you away from the wholeness of life. It says, come on, come back to Egypt. Come be a slave again. Come maintain the status quo with me. Well, I understand Pharaoh And I have to admit, I understand the Israel people. If Pharaoh has liberator's remorse, the children of Israel have liberation remorse. 
They turn on Moses. They begin to attack their leader. This is your fault. We told you we wanted to stay slaves. We wanted to stay back in the old system. We'd rather stay slaves than have to risk the cost of walking into the unknown. I don't have to tell you that change is hard. It takes risk. The road to liberation is complicated and sometimes seeming to be impossible. You think about the great stories we read. Pilgrim's Progress, The Wizard of Oz, Chronicles of Narnia, Lord of the Rings. Think about baseball. You're doing all this in order to get back home. You try to get home in baseball. Find that place where there's balance. It is the story of life. And the human tendency is just to concede, to throw in the towel and say, hey, we'll just stay with the status quo but not Yahweh. Yahweh is a God on a journey. A God who is forging a new way. Isn't it interesting that Jesus said, I am the way. Here comes Yahweh, who hears the cries of the poor and will not be deterred. He says to Moses, go, tell Pharaoh, uh, let my people go. And Moses, minding his own business with the sheep out in the field, hears the burning bush and responds. We believe the sacred hand is in the events and in the story it's about plagues. But we're looking for those ways that the sacred hand is warning us, nudging us, calling us toward wholeness. We may want to quit. We may want to go back to our Egypt slave camps. But here's Yahweh. And here's Moses saying, don't be afraid. Trust. Watch. See. God will fight for you. Do you believe in a God who is fighting for justice? Do we believe in a God who is fighting for harmony? Well, the road opens. The way opens, but it's not a way they would have ever dreamed with Pharaoh's army pressing in on them. You can picture this little ragtag group of people. I mean, we've seen the, we've seen the, the newsreels of refugees trying to move from one place to another. Moms and dads and kids and grandparents and dogs and cats. They look like the Beverly Hillbillies going across the the countryside as they try to, to get away. And here comes Pharaoh's army on one side. And on the other side of them is the Red Sea, symbol of all that is unknown, uncertain, never traveled before, symbol of all chaos and disorder. And God makes a way not around the chaos... But through the chaos, a way through the chaos, is it safe? You go first. Has it been vetted? Does it meet OSHA standards? I mean, is this, is this logical to follow a God like this? I mean, who's traveled this road before? Who's walked on the, on the bed of the sea? Who's, there's, no, there's no footprints. 
We're going to be the first ones. And we feel this invitation both personally and politically. Personally, I feel this invitation to walk into the chaos trusting that God will lead me when I get anxious to remember who I am, to remember what God has said, to walk by faith and not by sight. It's a gift of God. Thirty-some years ago, I had a wife who came home and said, I want a divorce. And my family, you know, it's the whole thing. It's my life and my work. And there's no way. But then a way appears. Not one I would have predicted or wanted, but a way emerges. Ten years ago when our son was killed in a fire, we thought there was no way. What do you do? How do you go back your life now? But through this community and other ways, God made the waters part, and I could walk on the dry ground again. Several years ago when my brother committed suicide and his reasons came out, it just created this utter paralysis and darkness. There's no way. There's no exit. And somehow, a way starts to break through the chaos, and you walk into it, and it opens and reveals itself to you. A way out of no way. So personally, we follow this God. But also politically, we follow this God. And I think publicly of how things change. And I, yes, the world is wildly out of balance. But I see these places where the waters are starting to part. A way's being formed out of no way. If you'd have told me 20 years ago when I came to Highland that we would now be a church that's welcoming and inclusive of all God's people, the LGBT community, I'd have said, no way. But look where we are. If you'd have said to me, uh, the refugees are going to get a little reprieve here, I say, no way. It's hopeless, but of all places, we get a little reprieve from the most unlikely of places. And when I think about the issue of race in the United States, We've been talking about it for some time as a congregation. We've been reading and listening and thinking. And the more we read and listen and think, the more impossible it seems. The more intractable this racism is. It's, as someone said, baked into the cake of our culture. How do you, how do you get it apart? We read that it's not just personal prejudice people have. It's actions by our government, state, and local, national, to segregate people and limit jobs and limit mobility and set a or- poor education base. And so now African Americans basically mistrust everyone. They mistrust white people. 
They mistrust the police, the government, both political parties. Sometimes they can't even trust each other, the young voices and the older voices. And it feels like Pharaoh's army is closing in. The system is set to keep people down. And on the other side is chaos and the unknown of the sea. And there's no way. There's no way. Monday we had our Angela Project conference. It was modestly attended. And I wondered at a time or two if we were just kind of preaching to the choir, as they say, you know, saying things to people that they, things to people that they already know. But I did notice it was a very diverse group. Very diverse group. There were a lot of white people there. Our Cooperative Baptist Fellowship sent some seven to ten people to the conference to be there as a, as a way to say, we're completely in. We are with this, with this movement. And among them were pastors from really across our Baptist world, pastors of significant churches who were there to listen and ask questions and grow and look for that little crack in the in the surface of the water. Is something new happening here? I watched these older African-American leaders, the, the head of the Progressive National Baptist, the head of the National Baptist Convention Incorporated, black Baptist denominations, as they heard young black activists, maybe for the first time. And you could watch their wheels turning, and you could watch as they realized, we're on the same team here. We're working together. We thought we should be estranged, but really, we're together in this. And afterward, when one of the young black activists, one who was a self-proclaimed atheist, came up to me. I had no idea what he was going to say. What he said was this. You guys are all right. You're not going to get me back in church, but you guys are all right. Can the wind push back the sea and provide for us a new way, a way of life and liberation, of health and harmony? Oh, to have a faith like Moses, to say, don't be afraid. Stand firm and see the deliverance of the Lord that the Lord will accomplish for you, for God is fighting for you. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. May our time together and our reflection on this ancient story deepen our faith and cause us, even this afternoon, to see the world differently as we look through your eyes and we look and wait and trust that the way will be revealed. In your holy name, amen.